The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the fifth Doctor story, The Five Doctors, or the fifth it falls on a fifth Doctor season, but it's got more than one Doctor. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Yakin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, Father Corey couldn't be with us today, but he'll be back with us soon, I hope. Uh, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode. We have more of your listener feedback. And I want to tell you to uh, like The Secrets of Doctor Who on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash Secrets of Doctor Who. Retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and leave us comments wherever you find us on social media. We love to hear from you. And I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Star Wars. That's uh, a fine podcast where we talk everything about Star Wars, and you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars. But this time we're talking about the Five Doctors, which was the 20th anniversary special of Doctor Who. And as we're approaching the 60th anniversary, that seems an appropriate time to talk about it. And uh, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens in this one? This week, a mysterious Time Lord figure is using a device called the Time Scoop to scoop the first five incarnations of the Doctor out of their times and drop them into a place called the Death Zone. Only Tom Baker didn't sign up for this adventure, so his incarnation gets stuck in transit. The Time Scoop is also being used to scoop up various companions from the past and deliver them to the Death Zone. The Death Zone is located on Gallifrey, and before the time of Rassilon, the Time Lord's ancestors would use the Time Scoop to bring warriors from different races to the Death Zone and watch them play the game of Rassilon or fight each other. But Rassilon put an end to that practice, and his tomb is located in the middle of the Death Zone in a dark tower. The doctors and various companions end up heading for the tower, but on the way they must get past challenges from famous villains like Daleks, Cybermen, and Yeti. The High Council of the Time Lords also brings the Master in and asks him to rescue the doctor and to let them know who's misusing the death zone. There's lots of wandering about and time-wasting, but nothing much that advances the plot. Eventually, it's revealed that the mysterious Time Lord figure who snatched the Doctors and their companions out of time and put them in the Death Zone is the Lord President of the Council, Barusa, and he wants to get immortality from Rassilon and rule the Time Lords forever. Rassilon, who is kind of sort of dead and not dead, lets him have his ring of immortality, but it makes him immortal by turning him into a piece of architecture, and he becomes a bas-relief on the side of Rassilon's tomb. Rassilon then sends all but the Fifth Doctor back to their own times. Now that Barusa is gone, the Time Lords have appointed the Fifth Doctor as Lord President, but he takes his companions and goes on the run instead. After all, that's the way it all began. The End all right. Uh, Jimmy, what was your overall impression of this one? Uh, it's there. Um, I've, I've never been a big fan of this one. And I think that it's it's not that it's bad. It's not bad. It's just very bland and paint by numbers. Um, it's a 90-minute episode, making it the longest single 
piece of Doctor Who ever. Um, and in order to fill that time, there's just lots of paint by numbers stuff. Uh, you get, you have all of the five doctors introduced, you have the companions introduced, you got a little bit of inter-doctor squabbling. They all end up heading towards the dark tower by different routes. They all face challenges to waste time on their way to the dark tower. And then we have the revelation at the end. It's very, very paint by numbers. It's not particularly creative. It's very predictable. And so to me, it's very bland as a story. Is it is it longer than the Eighth Doctor TV movie? Yes, it's like three minutes longer. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it is. It was long. Um, so for my, for me, I felt it would it would have been vastly improved with the addition of Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. I think he would have added something to the to this. He, he might have not, dominated it. He might have added too much. That's true. That's true. Um, I did like that each doctor got something to do uh, mm-hmm. that they weren't just uh, like with the three doctors. I think it was. Was it uh, William Hartnell kind of he in was, an image on a screen? He, he was the Tom Baker of the three doctors. He was the yeah. one that got stuck in transit. And, uh, you know, the, the, the that each they got paired with different companions. That wasn't mm-hmm. their normal companion. That, that was, was kind nice. of fun. Big finish has um, done a lot like that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, when I'm comparing the multi doctor stories um, of classic who uh, I, I'll set the modern who ones aside for a second. I think it's better than the three doctors, mm-hmm. but I kind of like the two doctors a little better. Mm. Mm, uh, really? I don't know. I, I felt like, well, I really like, like you, like you do. I really like the second doctor. Mm-hmm. And you got a lot more to do in that one. And, uh-huh. and it was an interesting location. Spain, you know, they went to Spain. Mm-hmm. So, But these multi-doctor stories of Classic Who, they don't seem to be all that great. They don't seem to do a good job of them. They're not. Um, the, I actually would prefer the three doctors to this one. Um, hmm. But I think that where multi-doctor stories, the, the first really good multi-doctor story is Time Crash. It's like the five minute one featuring the fifth and the 10th doctors that Stephen Moffat wrote that time crash is awesome. Time crash is to my money, the best multi-doctor story out there. Mm. I think that one of the things that this one does, because I know at like the 50th anniversary, people were unhappy that, oh, but it's just the modern era doctors. We want to see all of them. And I'm going, no, you don't. Because <laughs> if you've got to cram 11 doctors into a story, they're all going to end up with very little to do. And you just can't have casts of main characters that are that big. You can't have 11 co-leads. And right. and so um, so I was fine with them just focusing on three doctors. So, you know, I think this is even though they're only trying to manage five and it's really four. It's already at the breaking point. Yeah. And yeah. and it becomes very formulaic because you got to give them all something to do. So here come all the tick boxes. Here's the first doctor's thing to do. Here's the second doctor's thing to do. Here's the challenge the first doctor faces. Here's the challenge the second doctor faces and so forth. Yeah. I mean, when I think about the modern who multi-doctor stories, you know, Time Crash mentioned the day of the doctor, you have three. Twice upon a time, you have two, which mm-hmm. I really liked that one. I thought uh-huh. uh, uh um I had his name for a second, but the the doctor who plays the first doctor, like mm-hmm. you know, the actor plays first, did a really good job. I thought that was a good story. Um, and then uh, it's interesting that for the 60th anniversary, 
They're not doing a multi-doctor, as far as we know. Well, they haven't told us, but there are some hints, maybe. Right. Uh, and, and depending on when that comes out, you know, we're not quite sure when it's going to air. So this recording may actually be released after that. So then we'll know. But um, it, it's very interesting that so far, all we know is they're bringing back David Tennant. And uh, there may, we may actually see some of the other doctors, uh, probably from we, Modern Who. We will see the 15th. So Shooty Gout was going to be in it. So it will at, at least be a multi-doctor story in part. Hypothetically, that could just be at the end of the third special, though. Right. We, d- we don't know if it'll be broader than that. Right. Uh, so this one, the 20th anniversary special, it was aired as part of a promotion for the aid, uh, the Children in Need charity broadcast, which was the first time that was done. Although in Modern Who, that's been done. The, the Doctor Who has been supporting that a lot more. I think Russell T. Davies mm-hmm. kind of took that inspiration and was doing that. So that was a nice part of that. Uh, in fact, this aired much after the end of that of this season. I think it was. Um, Trying to think of when exactly this special, the end of season twenty, um, yeah, it was like, um, dude, November. that is so, that is so nineteen eighty three, right? Yeah, it was March. It ended in March of uh, the the twentieth uh, season ended in March of eighty three, but the uh, November uh, was you know at the time of the anniversary was when the the, the five doctors came out, so. Uh, as I mentioned, he mentioned that uh, William Hartnell was not, uh, you know, had died. He had died by this point in, in 1983. So they replaced him with the actor Richard Herndl, who I think did a, a creditable job. Yeah, I liked him. He did a good job as a first doctor. Yeah. Um, so it, that was, I thought that was very interesting. What did you think of, um, what, or do you know why Tom Baker didn't come back? You know, having been the most recent doctor? Uh, I think he just, I mean, there are different ways of looking at it, but he was pretty standoffish for a while and different actors have different preferences. Like, um, Christopher Eccleston has said he's okay with coming back, but he wants it to be a ninth doctor story. He doesn't want to do just a bit part in a multi-doctor story. And Tom Baker may have felt the same way. He also, he hadn't been off of the show for that long and, and he, um, he 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 may have been a little big for his britches, uh, you know. Um, yeah. In fact, he Tom Baker can be a little big for his britches, as is commonly acknowledged, and so that may have played a role as well. Also, um, another character I know why she didn't reappear, uh, Lala Ward, who played Romana too is in this via the footage they reused to get to get Tom Baker in it. <clears throat> they took footage from the incompleted story Shada, um, which nobody had seen anything of at the time. Shada was originally in production, but then an actor's uh, uh, not an actor's, but a strike uh, prevented them from completing the series. And so it was unaired for a long time. Recently, there have been various adaptations of it, including an animated one. Um, but, uh, at the time, nobody had seen anything from Shada. So this was brand new footage and they just used some footage of Tom Baker and Lala Ward punting at Oxford, um, as kind of their setup scene. And then when the time scoop scoops them, they get stuck in transit and that's the last we see of them. But I know that Lala Ward was also asked and she said, no, I don't want to work with Tom Baker again. (laughs) Um, no doubt partly because they had been married and divorced. They married Ooh. they married after the show and then after a year or two they got divorced. 
Interesting. Yeah, we actually talked about Shada, the the, the mm-hmm. animated, the partially animated reconstruction back in uh, 2018, January 2018. So almost uh, six years ago, as we're uh, recording this now, um, that was our episode 59. Uh, if you want to go uh, check that out. Yeah. Um, also, just yeah. to make another point of comparison with Christopher Eccleston's refusal to appear in the 50th anniversary. um he felt that his uh, his disappearance actually made the 50th anniversary better because that gave us the war doctor which yep. added a added a huge cuz originally the war doctor was going to be the ninth doctor and then when Christopher Eccleston cuz and the presumption would have been he was the one who fought through the time war but then when um when Christopher Eccleston said he he wasn't going to come back uh Peter Stephen Moffat created the war doctor with John Hurt, and it added this new mystery dimension to the Doctor, which was interesting. And in the same way, I think Tom Baker's failure to appear in this one is it actually benefits it. Because if he had appeared, we would have had an extra Doctor to cram into the story and give a bunch of things to do, including another challenge that has to be found on the way to the Dark Tower and stuff like that. And Tom Baker, as entertaining as he is to watch, he chews the scenery. And and that would have either dominated the presence of the other doctors or they would have had to adopt extreme scenery chewing in order to compete with Tom Baker. Right, right. I wonder who the villain he would have had to face would be because, you know, we had, uh, you know, the the second doctor has to face a Yeti. The third doctor faces well, he faces a weird robot. We'll get to that. And uh, and the Cybermen, um, uh, the first doctor faces the Daleks. Uh, it's kind of I'm kind of curious who they would have had him uh, have to go up against. Could have been the Weirin, could have been all kinds of people. Yeah, because he yeah. was there for seven years. He faced a lot of villains. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So you mentioned Romana's other companions that act that did that did appear. She, I mean, we saw Romana, too, in this one. Uh, we we have Caroline Ford as an adult Susan. Yay. She was um, awesome. Yep. And yeah, she was really good. Uh, Fraser Hines, who's Jamie, and Wendy Padbury, who's Zoe, show up as illusions, yep. as do Carolyn John, Liz Shaw, and Richard Franklin, Mike Yates. So they, we don't get them as their actual companions, which, you know, is a little disappointing, but they do show up for yeah. moments. Yeah, and it would have been really hard to work them in as actual companions, otherwise you'd have more companions running around than doctors, which we actually already kind of have anyway. Right. Because we also have Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier, Lethbridge Stewart, which is awesome. Uh, Elizabeth Sladen, Sarah Jane. And we'd get a brief cameo of K-9 Mark III, who existed at this time period in, in 1983 because they had been trying to make a, a K-9 and Sarah Jane yeah. pilot, I think. K-9 um, and company. Right, right. Um, which is kind of funny that they eventually did make a Sarah Jane sh- spinoff mm-hmm. show much later uh so um very interesting uh they do start the 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 show the episode with uh a clip of william hartnell the first doctor with his famous one day i shall come back line Um, he's talking to susan and he's they still need to pay that off they need to i mean (laughs) come on 15th doctor go back to 22nd century earth and and have susan that would be interesting. Uh, Shooty Gatwa showing up. Hey, I'm your grandfather. I mean, yeah. although for for time lords, I, I, I guess such would, radical changes in yeah. appearance would not be that big a deal. She, I guess. She, she'd roll with it. 
And yes. Big Finish actually has filled out Susan's story with the eighth doctor coming back mm. to to and had a bunch of has had a bunch of adventures with Susan um, played by Carol Ann Ford. But they still need to do it on TV, too. Yeah. Yeah. We had the 12th doctor with her picture on his desk mm-hmm. and never paid that off. That was disappointing. Yeah. Uh, the doctor has a the fifth doctor has a shiny new TARDIS console that he's got set up uh, on board. I, I'm trying to figure out why they. I mean, maybe they just want they're updating the TARDIS. I mean, that's one of the things they do for the new season, whatever. Um, but it's that's it becomes part of the plot because he's got to make it work. Um, and Turlo mm-hmm. and Tegan are his companions, but Turlo kind of disappears for most of this one. He's in it for a very brief period of time at the beginning. Yeah. And most of it, he's he's gone. He's not there at all. But Tegan gets a lot of play. Yeah. Most of it, he's in the TARDIS, whereas Tegan gets to go out and wander around with the first doctor and the fifth doctor. Um, The and this is part of the problem of having so many characters that you can't give them all stuff to do. And so Turlo ends up in the TARDIS. Susan, fortunately, has more to do especially at the beginning of the story where she's she has been transported to the death zone, but she doesn't realize she's on Gallifrey because she's in these corridors that look like Scarrow. And there's a Dalek chasing her and the first doctor. And at first they think they're on Scarrow. Um, but then later on, she gets stuck with Turlo and the TARDIS for a lot of the adventure. Right. Right. Which is unfortunate because again, uh, Caroline Ford is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fifth doctor and Turlo and uh and Tegan are start at a place called the Eye of Orion. Which we've heard about so many times it's nice to finally see it. Yeah. And it's the most tranquil place in the universe, which sounds like a nice place to go. Looks a lot like it's rural United Kingdom somewhere, Wales yeah. or Scotland or something. But it has yeah. all these positive ions, so that's that's why it's better. Yes, yes, positive <laughs> ions make you feel good. And then we start to see each of the the doctors who will appear in this episode Chased by mysterious floating flat planes. <laughs> it looks a little like the thing in um, uh, the first Superman movie where uh, the, the, the bad guys from uh, Krypton get stuck in it. That's their prison. The Phantom um, Zone. The yeah. Phantom Zone, right. Um, it looks a little like that. And this, it also looks like a black triangle or a black trapezoid. Yeah. And this is after the Superman it movie. It is. So it's yep. maybe inspired by that. And when um, it grabs you, you have it, your face appears on it really big and screaming, just like the Phantom Zone. Yeah, that's why it reminded me of it. Um, so the, And as each doctor is captured by it, and one companion, uh, uh, Sarah Jean, um, they end up, the, the doctor, with the, when the doctors are captured, the fifth doctor feels like part of him being just torn away. He's losing parts of himself and he's collapsing and has to be carried to the TARDIS. Um, so whoever this mysterious figure in black, it'll turn out to be Barusa, uh, is they're, they're ripping the doctor to pieces essentially, uh, and placing them in the, the death zone. It's kind of, we don't really get an explanation of why that is yeah. like that. It's just, we have to accept it and move on. Yeah. He's even like fading out of existence in, in and out of existence as a result of this. And then once he meets the first doctor, he's back to normal. <laughs> right. Right. Um, we do get a lot of our, um, uh, you know, some of our favorite qu- quotes, my favorite quotes from classic who in this one, because when the second doctor shows up at unit, mm-hmm. there's a new guy in charge 
And he says, uh, you know, oh, you've had this place redecorated. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> and then he says uh, something about uh, to the to the brigadier about his replacement. Yeah, I was disappointed in my replacement, too. <laughs> yeah. Mine, mine was rather unpromising as well. <laughs> which, which is a nice dig at both the third doctor and this new colonel in charge of things. In in this story, Patrick Troughton's doctor is is more snipey than he was back when he was the main doctor, and and I I noticed it's like he's he's getting in more digs than he normally does, but it's because of the tradition of interdoctor sniping. Yeah. It, um. So if he was if this was a solo Patrick Troughton story, he wouldn't be this negative. Right. Right. Uh, then the third doctor, of course, gets to drive Bessie because his, mm-hmm. you know, that's his famous conveyance. Uh, he and he, he lives to drive around uh, and gets captured in Bessie, and Bessie ends up on Gallifrey and breaking down there. Uh, hopefully, he got it back later. Um, and uh, and you mentioned the fourth doctor, so he's punting, and punting, if for those who don't know, is a type of boating where you push the boat along using a long pole. Mm-hmm. That you dig into the into the bottom of the stream and you push yourself along, like um, with gondolas it, in Venice. Picture that, and so uh, and they're and he and Romana are talking about punting and physics and whatnot. Um, it was a it was a good scene in Shada actually. I, I mean, it was I like the the the, mm-hmm. the uh, image of them in Oxford. Is it Oxford I, or Cambridge? No, it's Oxford. And I like that they mention you know famous thinkers. Who have been at Oxford? They talked about Newton, for example, but they also mentioned Owen Chadwick, and it's like, oh wow, nice to get a a a name check for Owen Chadwick. He was a 20th century um, theologian and history uh, historian of the history of Christianity, and it was nice getting him name checked on this, especially because he was still alive at the time. And he was still teaching at Oxford. And so they were naming a living professor. That's really cool. That's really cool. Um, And then something goes wrong with the fourth doctor's uh, abduction. And so they take Sarah Jane instead or was Sarah Jane planned? She was planned. She was planned to be the fourth doctor's companion. But when Tom Baker didn't show, they reassigned her to the third doctor. Okay. Okay. Um, If only she listened to K-9. K-9 knew something was wrong and she just ignored Mm -hmm. him. Just don't don't ignore K nine. He knows what's up. Um, and then we get the first appearance of the uh, High Council, the Time Lords, and B- Lord President Barusa welcoming Anthony Ainley's master in asking him to come rescue the Doctor. Which you know, when you're watching this without knowing what's all going on, you're thinking, why would you ask the Master to rescue the Doctor? That just seems silly. But when you know Barusa's plan, introducing the Master into the mix really does make things you know crazy the way he wants it chaotic and and wild and and that's really he's interesting in, he's initially though i i had a bit of a different take because they make a point that barusa did not want to involve the master in fact that's the first thing he says is i don't want to involve this person and mm-hmm. the other members of the council say yes but in emergency circumstances if the council is unanimous which we are we can veto you and so okay. they they've they've injected the master over Bruce's objections. And so if you know Bruce's plan that he's the one manipulating stuff in the death zone, then I could see why he wouldn't want the master involved. After all, the master might get there first and get immortality ahead of him. Right, right. Uh the master does play an interesting role throughout this. Um mm-hmm. 
he's tricky and diabolical, but uh, in the end, he actually is one of the reasons why Barusa's plan doesn't succeed because mm-hmm. he's introduced into this. Uh, so, also, there's a nice bit early on where they're negotiating with him, and they tell him, you know, we'll, number one, we'll give you a pardon, and he's like, "What makes you think I want your forgiveness?" And they say, "And we'll give you a complete new cycle of regenerations." And that interests him. And that's the introduction into Doctor Who, now that they established the ridiculous regeneration limit rule. Mm-hmm. Now they establish they can break it, which they end up paying off at the end of the 11th Doctor's time, when the Time Lords do give the 11th Doctor a whole new cycle of regenerations, which then gets retconned further in the 13th Doctor's time by removing the regeneration limit altogether. So we don't need to worry about it anymore, and we don't need to have weird quibbles about Doctor numberings. I will note that mm-hmm. the fifth doctor does say he's the fourth regeneration yep. of of himself. Um, so based on his knowledge, he doesn't remember the pre-Hartnell doctors. Although in the, the brain of no Morbius. I know it's an inconsistency. Yeah, it's it's inconsistent. So my, um, my theory is different incarnations of the doctor have have different degrees of access to their memory. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, like when when the. Um, in the brain of Morbius, when Morbius is trying to force the fourth doctor all the way back to his beginning, I forget if it's in in the TV show or in the novelization, but he's got a line about like, no, even I'm not allowed to remember that or something along mm. those lines that under extreme stress, knowledge of these previous incarnations starts to come out, but there's some kind of barrier there. And then I think the seventh doctor who displays knowledge that he is much more than an ordinary time Lord. I think he has based on clues in different episodes. He acts like he's got much more knowledge of his history than other incarnations do. Right. I mean, even in this story, different doctors have more knowledge of things than the others. Like they, yeah. You know, if they all had the same memories, you wouldn't need all, all four or five of them there. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way. Um, so the dark tower that's at the center of the death zone is the tomb of Rassilon. Rassilon is the, um, sort of the George Washington of time Lords. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's considered the greatest of the time Lords, although they, they, they paired him with Omega and also, um, they've paired him in the Cartmel master plan. He was paired with another figure that was going to turn out to be a version of the doctor known as the other. So there were going to be these three, there were Rassilon, Omega and the other were the three founders of time Lord society. And in the current canonicity, it's Rassilon, Omega and Tecteyun who right. kind of takes the role of the other. And is connected with the Doctor, but is not the same person as the Doctor. Um, the But basically, Omega and Rassilon were like stellar engineers who set the basis of Time Lord society by creating the black hole, the, the Eye of Harmony, that drives their time travel technology. And Omega vanished into the parallel universe and was believed to have been destroyed, whereas Rassilon stayed in our universe and got all the glory. And then Tecteyun handles the other side of Time Lord technology, which is regeneration. 
So between Omega and and uh, and Rassilon getting them the power needed to do time travel and Tecteyun getting them the regeneration ability, that's basically how you got modern Time Lord society. Right, right. And so his tomb is in the middle of the death zone, which seems an odd place to place it. It's this is a bit of this is a bit of writing stupidity because we're told that the the death zone was like this coliseum, you know, this arena, a combat arena that our ancestors used before the time of Rassilon. And then Rassilon put a stop to it being the allegedly enlightened leader that he was. Well, and there's also a nice comment where the brigadier turns to the second doctor and says, so I gather he's he's a good one. And the second doctor says, well, that's the official story. But there are also a lot of rumors. He was just the opposite. And I like that ambiguity about Rassilon's mm. character. But so it, this was the death zone was used before Rassilon and Rassilon put a stop to it. So then why did he put his tomb in the middle of it? And why do they refer to all the combat that goes on in it as the game of Rassilon, if Rassilon was opposed to it? That was the weird inconsistency, because he put a stop to it, but we're calling it the game of Rassilon. That yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah. And the and the tomb itself is a kind of puzzle box mm-hmm. that you have to, you know, navigate through to get to. It's it's classic Dungeons and Dragons, sort of avoid the traps and the monsters. Yeah. You know, it just seems kind of... I don't know. It just seems kind of silly to, to make like if that's a tomb, you know, but it's mm-hmm. a story. Uh, so we have uh, the, 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 the tomb. We mentioned the time scoop. The third doctor straight up doesn't believe the master's there to help. He sees the master. He's like, nope, I'm going the other way. Forget you. And he takes the master's. The, the Time Lord Council gave the master their seal so that he could prove he's really on a mission from them. And the uh, the the doctor, the third doctor, when he gives him the the seal of the high council, says, "Oh, forged." And it's like, no, oh, well, stolen. Then anyway, I'll I'll give it back to them when I see them next. And he keeps it, so he can't <laughs> can't use it to show any of the other doctors, right? And so that when he ends up, you know, running into the fifth doctor, the master runs into the fifth doctor. He doesn't have the seal. He's trying to prove his bona fides to him, and ends up getting. Uh, knocked out uh you know by uh was it the cybermen right yeah and and the fifth doctor takes his transmit remote from him and transmits to the council chambers and he's like there. oh he was telling the truth how about that <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile the, the master's out in the middle of the death zone unconscious oh by the way there was something else i wanted to mention about the scene where they're negotiating with the master mm-hmm. um the council is concerned that the doctor is going to suffer some horrible fate because he's been divided up in this way and he may die in the death zone and stuff like that and so the master says a universe without the doctor scarcely bears contemplating mm. and that shows the positive side of the master that he really does actually appreciate the doctor he he doesn't want him to die or at least not by anyone else's hands and and just like in it all the way back with roger delgado's master in that season that he was in every episode of you know he was offering to rule the universe with the doctor and offering the doctor huge power that the doctor could use for good if he wanted so the master's not all bad, and here he's like, "Yeah, okay, I don't want the universe to not have the doctor in it. I'll go. I'll go help him." I think you know he's conflicted, and part of him likes having the doctor to, you know, yeah. to go, you know, iron sharpens iron, sort of thing. Um, but he also, I think, there's also a 
some true affection still left in him somewhere. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. And reciprocally, on the doctor's point, when 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 the the master meets the third doctor, Sarah Jane's right there, and she says, "Who is that?" And it takes a moment for the doctor to recognize the master because he's not he's not Roger Delgado anymore. He's Anthony Ainley, and but he recognizes him and he says, "He's my best enemy." Right, right, and that's the thing. Is Sarah Jane never saw the master. That was you know mm-hmm. the. We we didn't get the decayed master until right. after she left. Yeah, that was she was in the gap. Joe Grant saw the Roger Delgado master, and and we get the decayed master after Sarah Jane's time when the Doctor returns to Gallifrey. Yeah, with Leela, uh, but I don't even. No, 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 no. He the first time we see the decayed master, he's played by Peter. What's his name? And it's when the Doctor has just been summoned back to Gallifrey, oh. and he doesn't know what fate awaits him, so he leaves Sarah Jane on Earth. Right, and before Leela. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, the third Doctor and Sarah Jane run into uh, yet another uh, creature. This one's a new one, right? The Rastin warrior robot? Yes, this is new. Originally, it was going to be a return of the Quarks who were from the second Doctor's time. Right. But they didn't do that for some reason, so they came up with this other thing. Oh my, it's supposed to be the like the deadliest uh, warrior robot in, in the universe, and I just had to laugh at it. It was kind of mm-hmm. ridiculous. It's, it a guy, just, it's a guy yeah. in a silk body stocking. And he's kind of jumping around like moment shots. <laughs> I mean, you have to be Gen X probably. I don't even know what moment shots is. But he's just kind of jumping around and like zapping out of existence and zapping in somewhere else. And it it just seemed kind of ridiculous. I hate to say it. It did not seem all that uh, scary or, uh, or formidable. Yeah. The, the most X whatever is another writing trope that I get annoyed by. You know, the most, it's like the oh, yeah. most, the most fill in the blank thing ever. I get it. Right. It's like, come on. Just Someone say it's else a is, deadly robot. <laughs> it's a deadly robot. It doesn't have to be the most deadly robot ever devised. Right. Right. Uh, and if it is, it's pretty, pretty poorly designed because it, it hunts by movement. Like, yeah, not sight, not sound, not radar. Sure. Um, but it does manage to take out all the a, a, a bunch of the Cybermen. So that, oh that's wow, good. it decapitates two Cybermen, mm. and and they, I mean just totally cuts their heads off. And uh, okay, they play it as if the Cybermen are robots in this rather than cyborgs. But he's taking he, he's taking people's heads off here. I mean biological yeah. people's heads. And they even seemingly allude to that because in one of the, as the Cybermen are being attacked by the robot, you can see one of them throwing up. And oh, wow. they, they might, it goes by really fast, but one of them's throwing up. And you could suppose, well, maybe they're really robots and that's oil or something coming out of it. But, uh, but no, if you know the lore, these are, these are cyborgs. They are, mm. they are living biological organisms that have mechanical upgrades, and he's tearing them apart physically. Uh, I have to say, for the first time in Classic Who, they are understandable, their dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they finally got the voice down right so that you can understand what they're saying easily. Um, well, they often I've, overdo I, the cyber voice. They often overdo it, although the first appearance, the cyber voice, I think, is effectively creepy. And understandable yeah. in the in the tenth planet. That's true. So, meanwhile, uh, Barusa back in the time council chambers has framed the Castellan for uh, you know, uh, 
being this this figure in black who's been who's abducted the doctor i suppose he needed to frame somebody you know barusa did in order to keep them off the scent until he got the completion of his goal because this is when the fifth doctor shows up he's like whoever's behind this is a time lord and 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 a fairly high ranking one too he points out mm-hmm. in order to be able to control the the death zone technology and the time scoop and stuff it's got to be a high ranking time lord so he's just pointed the finger at the high council and so right. that's why barusa has to frame the castellan so uh and, and meanwhile back at the dark tower uh the the different doctors the three different doctors are approaching from the the towers entrances. There's three different entrances. There's a an underground one, a ground level one, and one high up on the tower. In the underground, the second doctor and the brigadier are being chased by a yeti through tunnels till they find the entrance. On the ground level, it's the first doctor, and who's with the first doctor at this point? Uh, uh, Tegan. Tegan is. That's right. And uh, they kind of just walk in and they encounter a. Trapped uh, a checkerboard thing, which I get to in a second, and then above ground it's the third Doctor and Sarah Jane, and they have to uh, uh, what's that called? Uh, use a guideline or whatever. The I can't remember the name of it. The thing where you you, you uh, slide on a wire through the trees. Mm-hmm. They're they're doing that across to the tower, and poor Sarah Jane apparently is really afraid of heights. Yeah, and and Elizabeth Sladen really lays it on Nick about her uh, her fears uh, of of falling. There is unfortunately a um, and I forget the name of the I know the name I know the thing you're talking about I'm forgetting its yeah. name too, um, but there is a there's a an unfortunate mismatch between the close ups of the third Doctor and Sarah Jane climbing aboard you know the ramparts of of the top of the tower and the broad shot we get of their rope that they've been sliding along because if you look at the rope in the broad shot, it is not taut. It is, it is not a straight line between the mountain and the top of the tower. It's a big curve. It's dipping down. And if you try to slide across that, when the rope is not taut, you're going to slide down to the bottom of the curve and hang there. <laughs> Stay there. I thought they were going to hand over hand across, but they didn't. I remember now zip line. They they, yeah. they was basically zip lining across. Yeah, it has to be taut. <laughs> that is that is funny. There's also another bit with Sarah Jane where this is early on, where just to create some drama, she falls down a hill and and she's rolling down the hill screaming. And then the third doctor uses another rope that he's got on Bessie to haul her back up. But it just looks so her roll down this hill looks so fake and ridiculous with the fake scream. It's just laughable. Well, and it wasn't that steep of a hill. I mean, he stood up and walked back up the hill, you know, it's just, yeah, it was kind of silly. So I would mention the first doctor and Tegan, they go in and they encounter this checkerboard pattern, which is clearly a trap. And they're, as they're trying to figure out their way across it, that's when the master shows up. The master has been captured by the Cybermen, but in his usual way, he's offered to betray everyone else in order to help them. And you're not quite sure what he's up to because he's really not. He actually betrays the Cybermen here because yeah. he knows the way to get across. How for whatever reason he knows how to the pattern you need to get to to take, and uh, 
and lures them across into this space all but the cyber leader and they all get zapped by the trap uh, and and then he gets one of the cyber guns and shoots the cyber leader with it right so he 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 completely betrays the cybermen he's on a, he's doing his mission for the high council yeah it's kind of interesting to see however the whole checkerboard chessboard trap is really lamely done because we're given multiple inconsistent explanations of how it works. Yeah. The, the first doctor, by the way, the first doctor, when he meets the master, he doesn't recognize him. And the master says, actually, we went to the academy together, which mm-hmm. is another nice confirmation. We, I think we actually had that fact mentioned in the third doctor's time. Yeah. But it's a nice refresher. Um, but the fifth doctor starts throwing coins on the chessboard to figure out what how it works and he concludes that nothing happens until you get to the fifth row and then the whole everything on the board becomes a target for laser beams and then when anthony ailey comes he just he he hopscotches across the he actually i think the first time he just walks across the chessboard and then he hopscotches back along the edge of it and he says the pattern changes every time you cross so there's he says there's a new pattern every time and then he he leads the the cybermen onto it and they all die and he he crosses in front of the in front of the the first doctor and Tegan a couple of times and says, see, as easy as pie. And then he walks off and the doctor concludes the number pie and in, which is, you know, 3.14159265 or whatever. And instead of stepping in accordance with those numbers somehow, Richard Herndl just walks across <laughs> and it's like you didn't use a pattern at all you just walked across this thing you what you did had nothing to do with the number pi right and and then he's he's turning around and telling tegan now you do it and fortunately <laughs> and tegan looks like you're crazy but fortunately they cut away so that we don't have to see what tegan does to get across because it was just embarrassing they're they're talking about stuff that they are not visualizing for us yeah, that that's weird that they didn't bother to even just to to, to do something. But they're like, well, we're moving on. Next scene, <laughs> we get ninety minutes to fill. We're we're moving on to the next uh, shot. So as uh, the the third Doctor is and uh, and Sarah Jane are moving through the tower, they, this is when they encounter the weird illusions of Mike Yates and Joe Grant, who mm-hmm. act strangely out of character, and then. Scream at the you know at the top of their lungs as he uh, leaves them uh, mm-hmm. and they disappear, uh, and then the same thing happens with the second Doctor and Jamie and Zoe, um, which uh, nice to see them. Zoe mm-hmm. uh, and Jamie are ten years older at this point, a little more than that actually. I think than the last mm-hmm. time we saw them, ten and, or fifteen. And Wendy Padbury was pregnant, which is why they designed that weird blue bubble wrap dress for her to hide the bump. Uh, I see, I see. Yeah, the but looking good. I'm glad to see them both. Uh, you know, and we'll see Jamie again in the in the two doctor story. Um, but nice to see them. And then um, they get to everyone gets to the the actual tomb of Rassilon. They they all kind of show up there together, and there's a little obelisk in there with writing on it that doesn't look like the Gallifreyan we know, but it's old High Gallifreyan, which looks basically like 
what Greek letters or mathematical symbols or something. Yeah, it's kind of a combination. Yeah, uh, and oh, they have to. Speaking of go- math, the doctor also refers to the first doctor also refers to pi as a mathematical formula, which just shows you the level yeah. of mathematical knowledge the writers have. Right, it is not a formula. It is. A, it's a, a number. Constant. Yeah, a number. Yeah. Um. So they have to together translate the inscription on uh, Rassilon's tomb. There is a nice moment where the third doctor and the brigadier reunite for the first time in this, you know, the, in this one. Uh, it's nice to see that they're they're pl- happy to see each other. Um, oh, and there's a great bit where at the beginning where the second doctor is has shown up at unit. There's like a passing of the torch ceremony or something where Brigadier Lesbridge Stewart is 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 turning the keys over to Colonel whoever. And um, the second doctor shows up and says, oh, I, I read about your speech in the Times. And the colonel is like, that's impossible. This is strictly under wraps. And he said, tomorrow's Times. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Right. The report is still out here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and it's funny that the, the third doctor would be like, oh, bring your leather shoe. It's so great to see you because. He would be around the brigadier mm-hmm. at this point, right? I mean, he's just, you know, he, but yeah, it's fine. That's well, fine. He, this version of him could be from after he started traveling in the TARDIS again, and maybe oh. he hadn't seen him. Yeah, we can, him we can rationalize that. Yeah, I like to do the fourth wall break and just make it Pertwee mm-hmm. and, and Courtney uh, seeing each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they the the master shows up and he tries to betray the doctors uh, and take the immortality ring for himself. Uh, but it's the brigadier who gets the drop on him, which is nice to, to see uh, the, the brig uh, is, is uh, competent as usual. Although we don't actually get five rounds rapid in this one, which is, you know, kind of disappointing. Um, now, uh, Barusa, his, we get his plan revealed. The, the fifth doctor figures out, I like the, the bit where he figures out how to get into the secret room off of the council chamber. There's a har- there's Rassilon's harp, and I didn't know he was musical. And then he says uh, he he plucks a string. Here's something like a combination moving or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something in the wall, Some, something shifting, it, which gives him the clue that it's a key to open mm-hmm. up a door. And he's what's the key? so what is the key? What what do I have to play? And then notices there's a painting on the wall of Rassilon playing this harp and the sheet music is visible. So he plays the music. The doctor apparently knows how to play the harp and he plays the music and that opens the door, which is kind of, uh, I, I like that little bit of, um, uh, of secret, uh, mysterious it's, thing. It's very Scooby-Doo. Yes. Uh, right. Exactly. Um, so, and we, this is where we get the reveal of Barusa as the bad guy and he wants to be president of the eternal and rule forever. Um, you know, I hate when, uh, Rulers want to just keep going on and on despite the rules. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> and uh, the uh, the third doctor, meanwhile, has to. Um, re- they're trying to get the TARDIS released. The TARDIS is about to be blown up by the Cybermen. That was actually one thing that's been surrounded by these explosives. And Turlo and and uh, and Susan are inside, and they're certain they're going about to die. Uh, and then. The third doctor reverses the polarity of the neutron flow, which of course, and that lets the TARDIS uh, reappear, you know, dematerialize and reappear inside the tomb chamber. Yeah, this is this whole subplot is a little wonky. They, Susan and Turlow are in the TARDIS, and they hear this hammering noise, and so they look on the monitor to see what's going on outside, and they see some Cybermen playing with a rope, and there's no hammering going on. 
But eventually the Cybermen bring this big kind of blob, uh, you know, up to the TARDIS, which they reason must be explosives. And I don't know why they're so afraid, because the TARDIS is nigh on to invulnerable. And Susan in particular knows that. Um, So I don't know why they're actually afraid of this. In fact, uh, why are the Cybermen, are they trying to blow it up? Because they've already said we're going to need one of the doctors to pilot the TARDIS. So they're apparently planning on acquiring the TARDIS. Maybe they want to just blow open the doors. But even that is iffy. Um, And then later they talk about as the Cybermen are getting ready to blow open the doors, I guess. Susan says, well, at least that hammering noise has stopped. It's like you never showed us Cybermen hammering anything. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, So uh, Rassilon, so Barusa shows up. He's got the ring from the from the corpse and the the floating image, the floating head, uh, you know, the Wizard of Oz like floating head of Rassilon appears and uh, asks, you know, what is what is it you want? I want immortality. And so. he, he chooses. He, he makes him okay. Then you get to be immortal, just like sort of the genie granting the wish exactly as yeah. you asked for it. And so this you're immortalized a, this, on the side of the sarcophagus. This is a monkey's paw situation. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and then Raslan turns to the doctor and asks, "What would you like?" <laughs> and the doctor wisely chooses not to take immortality. Uh, and he tells him, "You have chosen wisely, doctor." And it made me think of Raiders, Indiana Jones, Part Three. Mm-hmm. He chose poorly. Yeah. <laughs> the understatement. I, I like the sequence where um, Rassilon gets immortalized because there's like four on the face of the of of Rassilon's sarcophagus that we see, or the beer that it's sitting on, or mm-hmm. whatever it is. There's like four panels, and three of them have these bas relief of guys, you know, busts of men. Uh, in them in Time Lord Regalia, and one of them's blank. And um, and when and Rassilon says there have been predecessors who've come here before you, and so that's who the other three guys are. Mm-hmm. They're they're other people who got here before Barusa and have been immortalized. And so when he immortalizes Barusa, he like appears as a bas relief on that fourth panel, and. As as that's happening, the faces of the bas reliefs, including Barusa's, partially animate. So they have so you can see their like their eyes moving back and yeah. forth in anxiety. And you get the sense this is not a this is not a fun, happy immortality here. This is this is like living hell. Wow. Yeah, that was suitably creepy. Uh, it is a Chekhov's blank panel, by the way. As soon as I saw like that odd blank panel, you're like something's going to happen to that one. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the fifth doctor, meanwhile, uh, I do well. I liked the the, the Tardises. The, all the doctors go into the Tardises with companions uh, into the the Tardis, and it's like, how are they all go? Why are they all going to one Tardis and saying goodbye? And then we see it's each individual doctor's Tardis, like sort of parting from the one and, and going off, uh, which is kind of an interesting effect. And uh, so they're all sort of coexisting in one time and place at a time. Mm-hmm. They're overlapping. Uh, yeah. Then, uh, and then, as you mentioned, the fifth doctor gets Shanghai to be the time Lord 
president again, because uh, the fourth doctor was also the Time Lord president, um, and runs off at the end uh, to, to as as he has before, mm-hmm. and uh, and then presumably the next season will begin soon. So, um, any other notes on this one? There's a moment where the first doctor, I think he's arguably out of character. Um, so this is the eighties. Feminism is a big thing. And the first doctor is manifestly from the early sixties. And so just like in twice upon a time, there's a, there's a bit of portraying the first doctor as if he's sexist because he tells Tegan to make herself useful by which he means get some food. And, and, uh, Janet Fielding who plays Tegan as an actress refused to do that. And so she so they rewrote the scene so that Tegan objects to the first doctor telling her to do that. And the fifth doctor says Turlow will help. And it's actually Turlow who gets the food. And when you see the food, it's like space food. You know, they have, for example, they're they're drinking green Kool-Aid and blue Kool-Aid and they have little cakes and stuff. So this is like outer space tea time. Um, But. I don't I don't I don't think that the that the first doctor was really that I don't remember the first doctor, you know, treating women that way. Um I mean, he he didn't treat them he, he didn't he, I'm not saying there was no effect from the time that the the gender attitudes of the early 1960s did happen on the show. But I don't recall him just directing women to, um, to get food in that way. I mean, maybe he did, maybe I'm not remembering some, some episode, but it seemed a little out of character for me. I did like how the fifth doctor tried to cover for the first doctor with Tegan and say, just humor him. I used to be very tetchy. Right. (laughs) I, I think, with Susan, he at times in the you know in the the, the Hartnell period would ask her to you know go fetch him a thing, please. Dear. Yeah, but that's a grandfather asking his granddaughter to help him. Right, that's not the uh, same thing. Yeah, no. um, yeah. Also, I liked with the second doctor um, as he's recounting memories with the brigadier. You know, he mentions, "Oh, we fought the Yetis and the Cybermen and the terrible Zoden and and the." The brigadier is like the who, and is, oh the terrible Zoden. Yes, she she you weren't in on her. She was in the future, and right. and and then he makes his comment about something being completely hairy and hopping like a kangaroo, <laughs> and and so the terrible Zoden became as a result of this line. The terrible Zoden became an in joke. As this as this fearsome, terrible villain that we have never seen. So, and and she gets mentioned in other episodes, too. Like there's an episode in the sixth doctor where the sixth doctor mentions the terrible Zoden. And so I just can't help wondering who she was. You know, what's the terrible Zoden like? What makes her so terrible? Um, so I like that. Um, they had some, you know junk of Rassilon stuff in this. You know, we have the tower and the game and the the coronet of Rassilon that lets you mind control people and the ring of Rassilon that gives you immortality um, and the black scrolls of Rassilon, which is what Barusa uses to frame the, the, the Castellan. Uh, he sends a guard 
to search the Castellan's quarters, and he comes back with this wooden chest that has the black scrolls of Rassilon in it. And you open it up, and there are these scrolls in there, and they're black. And they're apparently forbidden knowledge from the death zone or something like that. And they immediately burst into flame, which makes them not the best information storage medium. <laughs> um you know, I was, you generally don't want your scrolls to spontaneously catch fire. Um, so we don't get too much on them, but they're, they're, they're a cool concept. Also, the guard, the head of the guards that he sends to search um, uh, the Castellan's quarters, that was going to be Colin Baker as Maxill. Oh. Um, he was going to, they wanted, they wanted Colin Baker to come back and reprise his role, but he wasn't available. Otherwise that, that would have been Colin Baker again. We would have had six doctors. Oh, yeah. a future one. That's, that's funny. Um, excellent. So, uh, that is the five doctors. So, uh, before we wrap things up, I did mention we have some listener feedback. So let me get to mm-hmm. that now. Uh, this is an email from Steven and Steven writes, After finally getting to watch the newest Doctor Who episodes earlier this year and eagerly awaiting the new ones with the 14th and 15th, I just caught up on the Flux episodes. I really agree with almost all of your likes and dislikes from it, I think. It was a really neat season of television, even if it left a few things to be desired. I hope we eventually get closure on more aspects of the events of the Flux, but do retain some mysteries too. I wanted to email in not only for that, but because I'm confused by Jimmy's comments about representation, which he brings up regarding Diane. He said that it's just to fulfill a checklist, which does happen and is bad. People shouldn't be just putting things as tokens for producers. And that he's never been traumatized by not having any southern red-bearded Catholic mystery-solving apologist with dyslexia with whom to identify. And you other two guys just laughed along with him. I don't have much experience with this other than appreciating well-done portrayals of autism, but I've heard from a bunch of people about appreciating it when people like them are in things, especially with a lot of American and UTK TV not having a great deal of females or people of color as good leads. White men like us did have a monopoly on media and other things like this for a while, though I know there's more to it than that. My friend Katie is a Catholic Twitch streamer and has talked about how happy her daughter Mary is to have dolls with incompletely formed limbs like her. And I remember how happy Jimmy was with the portrayal of the dyslexic boy Elliot in The Hungry Earth and Cold Blood. There are obviously bad ways to do that, and I agree with you that characters should be complex and not just there for their one characteristic. I hope I'm not being preachy and vulnerable about this. Please forgive me, I was concerned by your tone in talking about representation because it seems mean. I mean well, and I believe you do too. Thank you for making good podcasts about both fun reviews of shows and of interesting topics and mysteries, and with a great Christian perspective. That's a character trait I wish we saw more on Doctor Who and Star Trek. I don't always agree with you guys about viewpoints, but I like hearing what you have to say. So that was Stephen. Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed the podcasts. In terms of the issue of representation, I don't know that we're that far apart because you say you recognize it can be done badly, but it also can play a positive role. And I agree. I think it can be done badly, but it also can play a positive role. My issue isn't with having characters that represent particular demographic groups, uh, you know, on screen. I'm all fine with that. Um, My concerns are about Um, there's sort of two. Um, One of them is representation that is historically inaccurate. 
like for example i was reading a, a review of, of uh, or an article about a film recently that was set in like the 1600s in denmark and the reporters were asking why aren't there any black people in this it's like well because it's the 1600s in denmark you know you didn't have that kind of um travel <laughs> you know that would result in um in this period in in danish history um or maybe it was norway i forget but it was it was a period where you know people didn't travel in the same way and you didn't have uh people you know crossing or being planted on other sides of international borders in that way so it just didn't fit the historical period the other is um besides a period inappropriate representation you know uh like you know if you if you're watching a show about medieval china you don't expect to see a native american you know a, a cherokee in it because there weren't any cherokees in medieval china and it would be ridiculous to shove one in just to have cherokee representation in a chinese film um the other is representation density where Every single character, or at least an anomalously high portion of characters, fits some demographic category in order to let the producers tick a box. Um, and this is the one that happens constantly in American media right now. Um, there has been a an overreaction to historic demographic presences in uh in media that has it's like gone to the other extreme um people have commented on how whereas it used to be uncommon to have female leads in action movies yeah as opposed to romances you know which always have always had female leads um now it's like all the action movies have female leads and and it's kind of gone to the other extreme um another one is is uh is gay people there were like no gay people in uh in a lot of historical media but now they're in everything in a way that's way out of proportion to their representation in the population and so um and in chris chibnall's time chris chibnall unfortunately had a tendency to focus on characters who fit demographic boxes that look very calculated and so you've got just look at the companions in the fifth doctor's time you've got not only is the doctor herself female for the first time which you know i don't have a problem with in principle i didn't like this actress's portrayal of the doctor but um look at the companions graham okay he's a senior citizen he's an interracial couple and he's a cancer survivor three tick boxes right there ryan ryan is a young black man and has dyspraxia two tick boxes right there uh uh yaz yaz is from the indian subcontinent so she's a minority in that sense and she's a woman and she has emotional problems and she ends up being gay four tick boxes dan on the other hand is the most normal you know, unless you want to say he's working class, he seems to be the most normal, which is why he's one of the most enjoyable companions. But then his love interest, Diane, it has it has uh, a physical disability. So when you just look at the companions, 
that Chris Chibnall chose, they almost all look like they're doing some kind of representation as opposed to just being interesting characters. And so it's not, I don't have a problem in principle with any one of these characters, but when you get them all together, it feels like the show is doing some kind of demographic preaching at you. And so my problem isn't with representation. I would take any of these characters fine, but when you put them all together, when you cram so much demographic diversity into a small space, it feels unrealistic. And I would say that's representation done badly. Yeah, I I would agree. And he he mentions how the father, Corey, and I laughed along with your, I just thought it was a funny image is like seeing a, you know, a red bearded Southern mm-hmm. Catholic yeah. apologist with the, who isn't you like, I mean, that, yeah, that, it's I was, a, it was such a specific example. It was a funny. Yeah, and, so. yeah. And that's, that's, that's why I used it because we can all get super specific about the representation we're demanding. You know, yeah. is it, is it enough to have a white guy? Well, no, he needs to have a red beard and he needs to be a Southerner and he needs to be an apologist and he needs to solve mysteries. And if I don't see exactly that, I'm not being represented. Well, yeah. 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 It's not about being mean. It is about just pointing out tendencies that we see in, in Hollywood and, and the UK uh, media as well uh, to to do this. And just, mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with pointing it out. Yeah. But in terms of showing the diversity of characters and having dolls that, you mm-hmm. know, represent the physicality of different groups of children, I think that's great. It's just, yeah. I don't want it. Sh- I don't, I don't want an artificial or inappropriate, you know, historically inappropriate form of representation shoved down my throat. Right. And yeah, it would be boring to have every show be all a bunch of middle middle class white guys yeah. too. I mean, it's yeah, you you want a diversity of characters, but as I, I think you said it right, Jimmy. I'm not going to repeat it, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, but thank you, uh, Stephen, for your email, and I hope that uh, that helps. So we'd like to finish up now by taking a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Anne H, Randy W, Mary K, Brian D, and Jack W. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Zyman Yannick, who edited this episode. So that's it from us. What did you think of The Five Doctors? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com, The Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, Send an email to Who at sqpn.com. Visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Or watch the show on, in video on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Media and leave a comment there. We'll be back next time when we may be discussing, depending on when the BBC decides to release the 14th Doctor specials, we may be discussing that, which would be awesome. Or we'll be discussing the 12th Doctor story, Hellbent. Until then, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, Brigadier, have I ever led you astray? This will be the exception. Thank you.